This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I say this so many times, but I've got the best intro of of any podcaster that I know of. <laughs> My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I am very, very happy to be joined by Patrick Fagan. You are a behavioral scientist and you were the lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, well, I can give you my spiel as it were. Um, sure. I may say, hello, I'm Patrick. Uh, sometimes I ask people to call me Pat uh, because research says it makes me more likable to use a, a nickname <laughs> or short name, apparently. Um, so as an applied behavioral scientist, that's the kind of thing I do is take these kind of psychological, scientific, academic insights and think about how to, how can we actually use them in the real world? Um, like you accessing your own name. So on the academic side, I'm a part-time lecturer at a couple of universities. I've published some peer-reviewed papers on things from Facebook psychology to facial expressions, uh, a few things in between. The most recent one is a symposium on using personalized nudges for suicide prevention. So if you send someone a message that resonates with their personality, they're more likely to save the hotline number in their phone. Uh, and then I've also written a book you can buy, please, uh, on Amazon um, or anywhere uh, about the psychology of effective communications. So how to grab people's limited attention spans, how to engage people emotionally, uh, and how to, to frame information in a way to nudge their behavior. Um, all of which I think would be useful for the cause, so to speak, um, which has been very much focused on mm-hmm. being rational and engaging people with statistics. Um, I think that's great, uh, but it can only go so far. Um, and then on the commercial side, for about 10 or 11 years, I've been doing consultancy and research using a whole range of techniques, personality testing, measuring facial expressions, measuring reaction times, all sorts of things. Um, and doing controlled experiments to nudge behavior. And I worked in advertising a lot, uh, making adverts more emotional and engaging. Um, and yeah, as you say, I was the lead psychologist for eight months at Cambridge Analytica as well. Um, but I'm sure you have many questions about that. I'm already nervous because I have to now be careful how I frame myself because I know that you're going to be, you're <laughs> yeah, going to be, se- you're going to be secretly judging me. <laughs> my wife gets very frustrated she's like can i just have some private thoughts in my own head <laughs> uh well i do think that there is some kind of virus out there um i've had it and it's not let's say it's not pleasant um but it absolutely from my experience and also you know just really looking at the data absolutely in no way at all justifies the insane hysterical response uh, and all of the huge, huge costs that are going to come from this response. So, of course, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I am a psychologist. And so from that basis uh, and all of the work I've done in, in nudging and in politics, uh, I've, from the start, been very concerned about um, mental health, obviously. I mean, it's not difficult to know that if you stop people from socializing, mm-hmm. Um, and confine them, that's incredibly, incredibly bad for their mental health. Um, And even the little things, like in the UK, we were supposed to not celebrate Christmas last year. Um, You know, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but actually that is a really important thing. It exists for a reason. It's cathartic. It brings people together. uh, It heals people. It gives them, uh, it allows them to mark the passage of time, which is something 
anecdotally, I've seen a lot that people feel like the days, it's two years has gone by and no one really has any memory of it and all the days are the same. Um, so anyway, from a mental health perspective, it's just been catastrophic. From a social cohesion perspective, you know, I think it's not really hysterical to say that things are falling apart, infrastructure's falling apart, trust, uh, communities, all of that stuff. Um, and then, yeah, from the start, I could see the manipulation, um, how things were framed in a certain way, uh, the the tricks that, that the government seemed to be using to get what they wanted. It's like what they wanted was a foregone, foregone conclusion, and they were using all these techniques to get there. Um, so, I, I, yeah, in short, I, I think coronavirus does exist, but I think that um, the pandemic of fear and manipulation and propaganda, frankly, has been much bigger and the costs, the cure is much, much, much worse than the disease. What is slash was Cambridge Analytica? Well, it depends. I mean, the kind of sensible answer is that it was a digital marketing firm that uh, got a bit of a tough time because they worked on the Trump campaign. And as you probably remember, Trump wasn't all that popular. So um, <clears throat> people love to, uh, people also had cognitive dissonance for why Trump won the election because nobody was expecting it. They thought that he was an idiot and anyone who liked him was an idiot. Um, and so they were looking for reasons why he could have won and they you know, come up with Russian disinformation and all of these things to try and explain what was a shock for many people. And Cambridge Analytica was another one of those things. Um, the media kind of story is that it was um, uh, kind of MK Ultra type mind manipulation, uh, uh, stealing people's private data, etc., etc. The truth is somewhere in the middle, uh, but really it was just a, a digital marketing firm uh, that did targeted adverts, really, um, for politicians and for brands, um, but using personality and psychology so taking targeted adverts but just making them more intelligent um i think the issue was number one there was accusations that they used data from facebook that was taken from people's permission without people's permission um which i wasn't there at that time but i don't believe that's true uh certainly and that it wasn't used for the trump campaign uh, and the other thing is that it was manipulating people without their knowledge um, but all advertising does that, so I'm not yeah. really sure what the issue is. Is it ethical or unethical to to try and persuade people to, uh, in this instance, vote a certain way? I mean, isn't that what election campaigning is all about? Yeah, so as you can probably imagine, this is something I've been struggling a lot with, especially mm -hmm. over the last two years. Um, Edward Bernays, who is kind of the the, the godfather of propaganda he literally wrote a book called um, propaganda mm. he kind of pioneered market research and marketing and, and pr and all this actually his great nephew um is the co-founder and ceo of netflix so take that for what it's worth uh, and they're, they're both related to sigmund freud uh, but he said that uh the only difference between education and propaganda is whether you agree with the information or not um and really all all communication is designed to persuade. The, yeah. the whole point, even of me having this conversation, what I'm saying now is I'm putting words in a certain order to try and persuade you of my point of view. Um, so yeah, all, all advertising and all campaigns really are 
trying to persuade people and they always have been. I think for me personally, if a Coca-Cola is using these techniques to get me to buy Coca-Cola, I don't really care. If politicians are doing it to get elected, I don't really care. I don't think they really have all that much power anyway, personally. I think it's, it's just theatre, really. But um, the issue for me is when governments start using it. And the, the reason I think that's unethical is because, number one, you can't opt out. It's not like, you know, with Coca-Cola, I can just stop watching the TV and I can never buy Coca-Cola again if they creep me out mm. or if they act unethically. But um, you can't opt out of the government, really, especially not a global government. Mm. Uh, the second thing is that um, uh, they have... They, the government has force behind it that Coca-Cola doesn't have. So Coca-Cola doesn't have teams dedicated to fighting Coca-Cola hesitancy. Um, and, and related to that, Coca-Cola doesn't have uh, a sense of moral righteousness about what they're doing. They don't, as much as they'd like 100% penetration, they don't feel it's their moral duty to get everyone to drink Coca-Cola. And that's really actually is, I think, the most dangerous thing about the government using these things is that they think they're doing the right thing, when in fact there's so many instances of um, unintended consequences uh, that could that could result from using these techniques. Um, yeah, so so I think really for me that's where the the unethical nature comes is when you're kind of forcing it on other people. You're assuming you know what's best, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, you have that righteousness about you. Yeah, I when I first got these emails uh, a year or so ago. I said, oh, under GDPR, um, can you remove me? I'd like you to remove me from your database. And they basically replied saying, no, but you, can, you literally can't opt out. When it comes from the government, it's potentially more dangerous. Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe I'm doing some mental gymnastics here because I do this for a living, for, for, for advertising, and political campaigns um but i think it's more yeah it's more dangerous from the government because they have that sense of righteousness um they will never quit and the, uh yeah they want they want 100% compliance from everyone everywhere all the time you don't want to sound like alex jones but you can't right. help but you can't help like sounding like alex jones because it's there's too there are too many coincidences right yeah, I mean, the the issue is when what you're being told is so patently false, mm. um, you have to look for alternative conspiracy, uh, for alternative theories. And sometimes they can get a bit wild because you're kind of navigating this world of chaos, really. We used to be able to trust institutions and just there was a structure and we could follow mm. what they say. And that's gone now. So it's got to the point where you know, a few months ago, I was Googling, how do I know the earth is round? Um, <laughs> I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that anything goes now. There's just no trust anymore. I was doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. What was your conclusion? Well, I'm still convinced that the earth is round. But I was also I was also Googling. Well, I don't say Google, uh, duck, duck, going. But it just doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as nicely. <laughs> So uh, for the for the uninitiated, so to speak, uh, nudging is where you make a fairly small change, um, and that has a big behavioural impact. So, for example, uh, if you say that um, 
if you say 100, 100 people have died of this disease, then people are scarce. You know, 100 sounds like a lot. If you say 99.999% of people survive this disease, then it has a different uh, effect. Even though it's the same information, it's just a changing uh, how it's framed. Um, and then there's things like if you put prisoners into prison cells with, with the walls painted pink, then they're calmer and less aggressive. Um, so anyway, there's so many examples, but it's just these tiny things which, which can impact people. And this, of course, has been uh, used in advertising. A very obvious example is using something called social proof, where if you say something's very popular, then people are more likely to buy it. Um, so that's nudging. Um, psychometric targeting, what you're doing is you're taking these principles, but you're understanding that some of them work better for some people than for others. So if somebody is extroverted, uh, so if they're outgoing and sociable and, and, and optimistic, uh, they're more likely to be influenced by social status. So they'll buy whatever is unique or, or popular. Um, whereas if somebody is neurotic, they might be more likely to be influenced by loss aversion and authority. So if you want to get them to buy something, you say, oh, you're going to miss out if you don't buy it. You kind of, you exploit, for want of a better word, their, mm. their fear. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not just nudges, but also the visuals and the imagery and the celebrities you might use. All of these are tweaked based on the personality, the psychometrics of the people you're talking to. And that's based on targeting individuals rather than, say, groups of people. Uh, well, in theory, you could do individuals, kind of. Um, that's probably further in the future. In theory, you can do it, but there's a few things in the way, which, number one, you have to create, I don't know, six billion different adverts. Uh, it's impossible right now. Maybe with AI in the future, you can. Um, number two, like legally and ethically targeting individuals. Like most most data is allegedly anonymized, although it can be quite easily de-anonymized. But in theory, you can't legally target uh, individuals. Um, yeah, so those are the two things. But yeah, so mostly now it's 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 groups, it's segments, it's different groups of people. Are you saying that they have the ability to influence the direction of human behavior? Uh, yes, of course. I mean. For Coca-Cola, it's getting people to uh, to buy Coca-Cola. Is it possible, actually, to to influence voters other than through TV advertising and posters on the streetlights to dramatically change the outcome of an election? Uh, the evidence is mixed. So there have been a few. Um, uh, uh, there have been a few studies on this, a uh, couple of meta-analyses, I think, and some of them say it does work, and some of them say it doesn't work, um, which in my humble experience means it does work, but the effects are weak, and there's like this nugget of truth that still needs to be kind of mined. Um, so it's not like this all-powerful MKUltra mind control thing that has been made out to be in the press, but it does work, and if you're a big brand or if you're a politician trying to talk to millions or hundreds of millions of people then you will definitely see effects and you'll get a good return on your investment but it's not yeah it's not kind of mind control um i think actually the more traditional means uh are far more far more effective i mean we're, we're upset about the influence of cambridge analytica on the u.s election meanwhile hollywood all those celebrities talking up Hillary Clinton every day, all day, 
um, they actually have far more influence in academia, Hollywood, the press, and journalists have far more influence than than targeted adverts. Trying trying to to not poke the the hornet's nest too much, but I think this response that we've had to coronavirus, this kind of hysteria and weather mask and and all of this stuff, um, it could only really happen in particular social conditions. Um, and so we have a, a populace that is very uh, reactive and emotional, and there's all these there were all these um, pressure points uh, in society anyway that have just been kind of worse um, by coronavirus. So uh, yeah, there's there's definitely something going on. There's these different ideologies coming together. I think um, yeah. Trying not to, I'm trying not to provoke them too much because they could be quite vicious. Whenever you see um, the, the most kind of intolerant people on Twitter, like the really angry people swearing, they hope. Um, I posted on, on Twitter my my pinned tweet is uh, because I've in the last year or so realized the power of gratitude. It's kind of life saving, really. And I just have a my pinned tweet is just if you read this, take a minute to think about something you're grateful for. And something somebody replied was, I'm grateful for all the COVID deniers and anti-vaxxers who are now dying of COVID. Um, so there's some really like bitter, nasty people out there. And those people, when you look on their profiles, they're saying like kind, tolerance. Uh, they have the pride flag emoji. They're all about, you know, love and tolerance. Um, but yeah, so I think there is this, I don't want to fall into like this left-right trap, but mostly leftists, hmm. quite intolerant um, it's like be kind and stay safe or else kind of mentality is, is quite odd. And I think coronavirus is certainly linked to that, the, the response to it. The, re the response, yeah. Um, I was about to say, I don't think left-right politics matters anymore. I think everything's upside down. No. Yeah. Um, so you think it's authoritarian, libertarian? Um, I'm not sure, Patrick. I, I don't know how to pigeonhole it. Um. I've been thinking about this for months, as I'm sure you have, as I'm sure many have. I, I, I'm certainly convinced that left-right politics is dead. Do, do you know Gavin McInnes? Yes, he was on my podcast. Oh, really? Wow, okay, great. Yeah, he's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, he, he, he said that there's two types of people, people who want to be left alone and people who won't leave us the fuck alone. <laughs> I think maybe that's, that's the new <laughs> paradigm. Everything is moving... Uh, digitally, and we're entering this transhumanist age. Uh, yeah. I mean, I personally try and shut my phone and keep it away from me, and don't take it outside of the house. I don't want to be trapped and traced. Um, yeah, I mean, and and the data can be used for the most intimate uh, things. I mean, you know, Elon Musk Neuralink allegedly has these chimpanzees playing pong uh, with the chips in their brains, um, and so that's that's what's coming down the future, and you've probably seen all these experiments like uh, mice having, I think it was magnetized graphene or something put in their brain, and their behavior or mood can be controlled, something like that. Um, and that's coming down the pipe. And even today, with the behavior, with the digital footprints that we leave online, they can predict really personal things. Like there was a Facebook like study maybe five, ten years ago, which found they could predict drug use, sexuality, depression. Uh, from the things that people liked on Facebook, um, and that it's just it's just getting 
uh, more sophisticated. Uh, and the, th the thing about vaccine passports and this whole thing is that number one, they'll make the state omniscient. So mm. they'll be able to read your mind and predict your future behavior that you might not even know yourself through these predictive rhythms and collecting all this data. And then the second thing is that they'll make them omnipotent because they can use that data um, and mm. use it to let you go into restaurants or not. Um, so yeah, absolutely, data is very, very important, um, powerful. And I was thinking just the other day that, you know, there's this idea of the political strongman, like Hitler and Mussolini were strongmen, like ranting and shouting and uh, wearing these big leather boots and stuff. But it seems like the most uh, tyrannical people today are not like at all. You have like Justin Trudeau, um, the chairman down in Australia. You, it's like the age of the political weak man, I was going to call it, but mm. uh, it makes me wonder if military force uh, is really that important, at least in the West these days, um, when you can have like someone who's actually quite snarky and passive aggressive, like um, Chairman Dan, I can't remember his real name, uh, in Australia, yeah. or Justin Trudeau, who are using data to, to enforce these things rather than, although I know there are military police in Australia, but really it seems to be like psychology and, and data that's that's the force here facebook has got what two billion users that's a significant database yeah yeah and i mean it's got those users it has what you like on on facebook um but then they also have things like facebook pixel which is something that can track you across uh different websites so they know for example if you buy a, a product on another website that's not facebook um, yeah, the, the depth of information that they have is incredible. I suppose there's a question mark over whether they have the computing power and the, the sophistical kind of the sophistication of algorithms to analyze it properly. Um, I'm sure they do. I'm trying not to click like or love or heart or ha ha on Facebook. Am I being paranoid? Um, no. Well, so I assume you don't want to click it because you don't want Facebook knowing your most personal things. Yeah, no, you're not being paranoid at all. I did a, a proof of concept study, uh, which was a survey, but still, um, where I was able to predict what pornography people like to watch based on the, the movie and books and TV shows that they like, where, I, for example, I made a, a model that had quite good predictive power uh, that could predict if people watch hentai or not. So if somebody likes uh, animated TV shows, foreign language films, and science books, among other things, they're more likely to watch hentai. Um, but the point being uh, that, in theory, these algorithms can predict very personal things that are completely unrelated to what you're you're saying like for, because they, they can read your psychological processes from it. Do you click like on Facebook? Yeah, I'm not, I don't use Facebook. Uh, I do have an account, but I don't use it. Uh, I do, yeah, I'm trying not to, I'm trying to use things like Twitter just purely from a functional perspective um, rather than, I think most people use it for like an us versus them kind mm. of thing where it's like, oh, look how stupid these people are being. Yeah, They're not smart like us. And I'm just trying not to engage in that. So I just post things which I think are interesting. Um, yeah, I guess I kind of think I'm not really interesting enough to for, the, for them to, to analyze my deepest thoughts. Even if you didn't press like, 
um, they could see from how long you your dwell time was on that piece of content before you scrolled on to the next one. They could see if you engaged with it or not. Um, so, I mean, for example, TikTok is that algorithm, as I believe, is not really based on likes at all. It's based on what you actually watch versus what you just skip. Um, so everything you do leaves a data trace. And this is before even biometrics have become ubiquitous, where they'll be able to look at your eye movements and your facial yeah, I think there's an interesting psychology in that they have this information on whether people like things or not, and they seem to completely ignore it and keep churning this stuff out anyway. Um, I don't think they care what people like or want in terms of content creation. Um, and that goes, I think, to your cultural Marxism point earlier, that it's, in many industries, it's become about uh, ideology rather than merits. Um, or quality. Uh, but yeah, what they're doing with that data is uh, it, it depends. I mean, you need to have an account and identity that they link it to, which is why these vaccine passports are so dangerous, because what it would be is a centralized digital identity that all of your likes are linked to. So if you like something on YouTube, you buy something on Amazon, if you say something to a friend's Alexa, uh, all of that will be linked to your identity. And then, so what they're doing with it, or they will do it, is be able to read your mind, really, and predict your future behavior um, and make sure good to challenge the hegemony. From, from, a, from a data point of view, as I said earlier, it does two things. It makes the state all-knowing uh, because all of this data will eventually, inevitably, be linked to this government ID and then they'll be able to predict very, very personal things about you. Um, there was uh, there was a critic, a Catholic Monsignor, who was a critic of Joe Biden, and he um, wanted to excommunicate Joe Biden or something like that. Um, and he uh, was using Grinder, and uh, they managed to de-anonymize his Grinder app data, and he was outed. And uh, it was it was apparently a little Catholic block which did this, but the cost and the know-how involved suggests, of course, it wasn't this block. It was uh, probably U.S. intelligence or something. Sure. Um, but anyway, his data was used to crush a political dissident um, who was saying things that are uncomfortable for for Biden. Um, so all this data that you produce, but also with these predictive algorithms, they can use it to predict. They can predict what your prejudices are. They can predict what your insecurities are. They can predict your your kinks and your your fears for the future and all this stuff, um, and use it to manipulate you. They can use it to to blackmail you. They can use it to um, uh, to to outsmart you and know what you're going to do before you even do it yourself. Um, and then the second thing is that it makes the state all-powerful because you need to have a green tick on the passport to 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 get into a restaurant so what you could very well and probably will end up with is a minority report type situation where they can predict that you're going to do something bad and then um, uh, modify your behavior and not let you buy bread at the supermarket um, if you don't comply uh, and I think what we're going to see is all of these tools that have been used to fight viral diseases be used to fight viral ideas. And so you're already seeing Joe Biden saying that misinformation on Facebook is killing people and things. Um, 
So all of these things, including vaccine passports, are going to be switched on for what you say and think. Um, so that's why I think they're so dangerous. There was a study that found that 93% of people admit to having a secret of some kind. Like even if you've Googled something embarrassing, like what's this, what's this wart on my body? Um, every, everyone has stuff they would rather keep private. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that even if the data you're leaving, the photos and the likes and things are innocuous, they can be used to predict things that are personal and that can be used. Uh, they might not be, they might not be personal or embarrassing or anything. They might not be secrets, but they can still be used to understand how you think, and they can be used to to influence you very powerfully. Um, and then the third reason is, you know, it's this. You hear it a lot. Oh, it doesn't affect me. It only affects other people, so mm. it's fine. Um, but eventually, it might affect you. You know, politics change. Uh, it used to be that terrorists were just Muslims, and now it, the net's being broadened to domestic terrorists, whatever that means. Um, so the net widens. So it's something that might not affect somebody now, it could well affect them in the future. Would you say it's better to err on the side of paranoia? Uh, I would say that, but people would probably call me a kook. <laughs> I, I think it's important to to be critical and to think critically and to question authority. Yeah. yeah, there's a theory. It's just a theory, but that technology actually has a, a kind of will of its own, and it's just using us to to evolve. Um, yeah, you can't you can't uninvent technology, mm-hmm. um, and you can't put you can't put it back in the box really unless there's some huge global emp event but even then i'm sure it wouldn't take long to rebuild everything um so you're you're thinking along the lines of uh, ted kaczynski there yes yeah yeah well i have um i personally have an avoidant attachment style so if people annoy me if if the relationship sours i'm just like see you later so that's kind of where i'm at with this the system, um, I, I call it the long march away from the institutions. Like the, this ideology has captured academia and the arts and Hollywood and everything. So I'm just kind of like, okay, you can have it. Um, uh, I, I think that's really is the only, the only solution uh, is to stop feeding the beast. Um, and if you just step away from it, it will collapse under its own weight. Technology is great. Obviously, you wouldn't be having this discussion without it. Um, I, I don't know if it's technology so much as more as the system, which is the way in which we use it. Um, and it's kind of hesitate to use this word because people react a certain way, but it's a spiritual thing, I think. And um, people are currently looking for secular mm. solutions to spiritual problems, I think. If people had more spiritual health, there wouldn't be as much of an issue with technology as it is. We're just kind of giving into our basest instincts and impulses. We're, you know, we have Deliveroo for gluttony, and we have uh, Tinder for lust, and we have Instagram for envy, and all of our kind of passions and most basest instincts. We're feeding it, and in turn, they are growing. If we had a bit more strength a bit more consciousness about what how we're using these devices i think they could be an amazing amazing tool but as it is you know the iphone has a bit an apple on the back i think we should you don't have to be you have to be religious to understand symbolism to understand 
archetypes in the collective unconscious that this is probably a thing for impulse and, and vice. And if we were, <clears throat> there, there's an analogy that mosquitoes only can only survive if they're standing water. Um, and so in the same way, this t technology can only be harmful if we kind of let it. So we're kind of, in a way, consenting to it. And I think we as individuals should be a bit stronger. The old kind of philosophical debate of are people inherently good? And you can leave them alone to make their own decisions or are they inherently evil and they need mm. to be managed? Um, and I think we're in the latter philosophy at the minute and that's where nudging comes in because, because it's this idea that people need to be nudged and managed because they're so emotional and impulsive, which is probably true because of the technology. Um, can it happen? Uh, I like to think so. I mean, we've had, as a species, we've had great periods of enlightenment and and art and culture and development and technology. I just think we're in a bit of a, a dip at the minute, in a downswing. So I personally subscribe to um, the kind of cyclical, cyclical theories that are out there. So there's a few. There's the Strauss-Howe generational theory, the fourth turning. Um, there is a more scientific one called uh, Ages of Discord is a good book. There's um, uh, uh, Decline of Empires, is it? I can't remember. But anyway, you know the, the hard times make weak men, uh, strong men, strong men make mm. good times, good times make weak men, weak men create hard times. But anyway, this idea that there's this kind of cycle, uh, it goes around every 80 to 100 years. Um, every 80 to 100 years, you have famine, plague, and war. Yeah. Um, so that's where we're at at the minute. People, uh, a couple of smear articles written about me, and so I'll say something like, I'll self-effacingly call myself a tin for hat-wearing conspiracy theorist. As a joke, and yeah. And they'll take that out of context. Yeah, as obviously no one would actually say that about themselves, but they take, mm. uh, they take that out of context and say, oh, he fully admits he's a tin for hat-wearing conspiracy theorist. So I'm just trying to be a so, bit more pragmatic. So, so that little bit where you said you where you Googled if the earth is flat, so that little piece, just that little piece. Yeah, exactly. They're <laughs> yeah. so sneaky. I, I worked with an organization that was really, as much as I liked them, they never achieved anything. They were just really small couple of people. And they wrote this article saying that it was a discreet, silent organization. It's not discreet. It's not, there's nothing sneaky about it. It just didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> like a real estate agent who says that house is cozy. It's just so dishonest. I hate them. Really. I can't drive down the road without seeing signs telling me to stay far away from perfectly healthy people. What do we do? Um, I think, so this is a classic tool of brainwashing. You find it in cults and interrogation and torture and, and abusive relationships even, where they wear you down with stress. Um, it's uh, there's even there's an experimental name for it. It's called disrupt then reframe. Or there's a, there's an esoteric name for it, which is solve a coagula, which means dissolve and coagulate. Um, but basically, the idea is you need to break people down or break things down before you can build them up into a, before you can build back better, so to speak. So what we're, I think I believe what we're experiencing at the minute is this. Uh, Break, trying to break down identity, break down old habits and customs and ideals in order to build something new in its yeah. place. And what do we do about it? The main thing is just relax. Don't get scared, but don't get angry. Don't struggle too much. Think of it like uh, 
a matador waves a red flag at the bull in order to tire the bull out so it can be killed. Just try and keep your pace, don't get too tired and just, mm. just try and relax and laugh if you can. It has been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.